we get started, uh, I just want to tell you, I've had a very big burden on my heart about the the way in which the Lord has kind of directed me to uncover the truths that we're going to uncover today. And I'm going to spend a lot more time in John than we normally would because of the nature of the season that we're in. Pastor David obviously had to extend beyond the, the focal passages in the biblical or the context Bible. And so I want to kind of continue the narrative of John today. And in so doing, we're going to talk about a very um, kind of intense subject, as it were. It's just working. There we go. Um, and so, as we begin today, I just want to ask the Lord for prayer and um, ask the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us as we kind of encounter some harder truths of the Lord today. Okay, so let's just go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the ability to come and and worship you through the, the reading of your word. God, we thank you that we have, to, we have fellowship with each other, Father, but also with your Holy Spirit today. And as we encounter your word, Father, I'm praying that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our minds and our spirits to the truth of your word, that you would shape us and mold us into the image of Jesus, that you would encourage us where we find encouragement, Father, that you would also uh, challenge us and convict us, Father, where we need conviction. And as always, Father, may you be glorified by everything that happens here today, for that is our desire. And may you increase and I decrease, we pray in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. The reason for existence, the reason why we were created, everything that exists, exists to glorify God. And that's an easy thing to affirm when those things that exist are good. But the question becomes, what happens, or how do we ascribe the idea that evil and suffering exists to bring glory to God? It's a weighty subject, right? In fact, um, Many, many arguments against Christianity have been rooted in the idea that evil exists, that suffering exists. And even as I'm saying that right now, you feel the tension, don't you? You feel the tension that evil exists and yet God is sovereign over all things. You feel the tension because many of you have experienced it. You've experienced evil in your life. You've experienced suffering in your life. You've experienced disease and things of that nature in your life. And when you experience those things, it causes you to, to question, hopefully in a positive way that leads you to greater understanding and faithfulness in the Lord. But for many, that has not been the case. But what I want to communicate to you this morning at the end of the day is this, that all things truly work for the glory of God. All things work for the glory of God. Everything that is exists to bring glory to God. God is sovereign over the evil and suffering that we experience in our lives. Before we move any further, there's a simple and obvious question to me here. Don't you want him to be sovereign even over the bad things in our life? Wouldn't it be dangerous if we said that there is something that exists that is outside of the control of God? Well, there have been many who have tried to get God off the hook, as it were, for the fact that evil and suffering exist. There's a a classic kind of religious book called, um, I'm going to switch over to the Elmo, called, uh, let me scoot out, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And uh, it's written by a guy named Harold Kushner, who's a Jewish rabbi. 
And I want to just read for you this morning um, the reason why he wrote this book. Let's see, let's get in here. Can you all see that? All right, here's what he writes. Our son Aaron had just passed his third birthday when our daughter Ariel was born. Aaron was a bright and happy child who before the age of two could identify a dozen different varieties of dinosaur and could patiently explain to an adult that dinosaurs were extinct. My wife and I had been concerned about his health from the time he stopped gaining weight at the age of eight months and from the time his hair started falling out after he turned one year old. Prominent doctors had seen him, had attached complicated names to his condition and had assured us that he would grow to be very short but would be normal in other ways. Just before our daughter's birth, we moved from New York to a suburb of Boston where I became a rabbi of a local congregation. We discovered that the local pediatrician was doing research in problems of children's growth, and we introduced him to later, uh, Aaron. Two months later, the day our daughter was born, he visited my wife in the hospital and told us that our son had a condition that was called progeria, or rapid aging. He went on to say that Aaron would never grow much beyond three feet in height, would have no hair on his head or body, would look like a little old man while he was still a child, and would die in his early teens. Pretty intense, right? Now we come to the the debate that Rabbi Kushner is having kind of within himself as he's discovering this tragedy in his life. Like most people, my wife and I had grown up with an image of God as an all-wise, all-powerful parent figure who would treat us as our earthly parents did, or even better. If we were obedient and deserving, he would reward us. If we got out of line, he would discipline us, reluctantly but firmly. He would protect us from being hurt or from hurting ourselves. Then down here, tragedies like this were supposed to happen to selfish, dishonest people whom I, as a rabbi, would then try to comfort by assuring them of God's forgiving love. Now maybe you haven't experienced something to the level that Rabbi Kushner has experienced this kind of evil and suffering, but you've probably experienced something similar to this in your life, at various levels, of course. What Rabbi Kushner does is he says, he needs to redefine the way he thought of God in order to explain this um, tragedy happening in his life. And so what he does is he says that God is no longer all-powerful. He removes God's ability to do something about this evil. And so reduces him in order to account for the fact that God is, and yet evil exists. And this is kind of the traditional problem of evil, that God is all good, God is all knowing, God is all powerful, and yet evil exists. So how do those things exist simultaneously? Because if God is all good, he should want to do something about evil. If he is all powerful, he could do something about evil. And if he's all knowing, he knows. And he can do something about it. You know, there are some who would say that God does not know the future. And as a result, can't do anything about the evil that's going to come. He only knows possibilities. He can react to those things, but he doesn't know for certain that those things are going to happen. I want to confirm and affirm with you this morning that we don't need to reduce God from the fullness of his being in order to account for the presence of evil and suffering in the world. God is still good. God is still all-powerful. God is still all-knowing. And yet evil does exist. But I want to affirm to you this morning as well that in the midst of evil and suffering, God is sovereign. And it, it ultimately will all lead to his glory. So, the question for us 
is that if God is sovereign over evil and suffering, can the presence of evil be redeemed in a way that brings glory to God and good to his people? Let me just give you a little brief overview of evil. My my purpose today is not to um, deliver fully a philosophical defense of God in light of evil. I want to get to the biblical text and talk about how we are to respond to the the place of of evil and suffering in our lives as people who have um, given our lives to Jesus. But I think it's important to recognize that there are philosophical um, theodicies, if you will, defenses of God as if he needed one in the face of evil. They exist out there and they're very good. A guy named Elvin Plantiga, who's a philosopher at Notre Dame, has given several. Um, If you would like a guy who's been here before, a guy named D.A. Carson, has a great book on evil and suffering called How Long, O Lord. Um, I'll just point you to those resources if you have more questions. But just as a good general overview, Millard Erickson, who is a, a giant in evangelical theology, defines evil this way. Evil simply is that which is morally bad or harmful. And traditionally, we... We classify two types of evil. There is moral evil, which is evil that is the result of humans' decision or free will. There's natural evil, which is evil that is um, brought about by the cause of the functioning of nature, for instance. Which ultimately is tied to moral evil, as we will see in a minute. But there's, there's evil that is presented upon us that is the result of someone exercising their human free will, and there's evil or suffering that's presented to us as a result of the the kind of natural functioning of the, the order of nature, okay? So if it is true that everything exists to bring glory to God, can the presence of evil be redeemed in a way that brings glory to God and good to his people? And this question is ultimately what lies beneath a couple of chapters that we'll cover today in John, beginning with John chapter 9, if you want to turn there. And as you're turning there, let me just give you this affirmation. As the people of God, we must acquire a Godward perspective in all things, understanding that all things are given to us as believers as grace to know him more. Dr. Trammell says often that nothing comes into our lives that is not father-filtered, which is encouraging and also challenging, right? But we also understand that it is true that what Paul says, that you and I, as followers of Christ, are to walk in the grace of Christ in the same way that we received it. And we understand that everything that God gives us, even bad things, is grace to us to know him more, to further glorify in him. And that requires a, a very mature level of faith requires a a great devotion to the truth that God is sovereign over all things. Even if we don't see the immediate purpose or any purpose, we can trust that God will grant us the mercy in the midst of that evil or suffering and eventually overcome it. While God is justified in allowing evil, as we will see in just a few minutes. He can, when it is consistent with his character and purpose, intervene in the affairs of men in order to correct that evil or suffering or do so in answer to the prayers of his people. 
And always when God does that, it's to, to reveal further truths about himself that would lead us to glorify and worship him. As we've seen throughout the book of John, right? Anytime there's a miracle in the book of John, it's not by some happenstance or accident that that miracle takes place. It's always to affirm the deity of Christ and lead us as is John's ultimate purpose to believe in him. As we see in John 20, verse 31. Before we get to John 9, let me just give you a little bit of an overview of our understanding from a scriptural standpoint of where evil shows up on the scene. And that, of course, begins in Genesis chapter 3. If you want to kind of hold your place in John and go back there with me, to Genesis chapter 3, you'll see a very familiar passage of scripture to you, uh, which we call the fall of man. Of course, at this point, God has been walking with um, Adam and Eve in the garden. He has given them a very simple command. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden. As long as you don't do that, all this is good. We're going to have perfect intimacy, but if you do that, you will surely die. And I love how the author of Genesis, likely Moses, begins the discussion of the fall of man with the serpent coming to Adam and Eve and asking a question that all of us will ask whenever we begin to step into rebellion or sinfulness against the Lord. Did God really say? That's the beginning of all of our rebellion that leads to the fall and evil in the world. Did God really say? And so, of course, the serpent convinces Eve to eat, and then Eve convinces Adam to eat. And then we see this curse as God speaks to the serpent, Adam and Eve, about the rebellion that they have brought upon the earth. Beginning in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And in that phrase or verse right there, we see a promise of an undoing possibly. It's called the Proto-Evangelion right there that uh, at some point, uh, this curse is about to come, can be overcome by the, the fruit of the, of the woman coming later. So the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the rebellion we see there, a moral decision, leads to the presence of moral evil in the world, which ultimately has a greater cosmological consequence and introducing evil in a natural sense as well. That is the fall. We live in a broken world, and my friends, the curse is real. Everywhere you look, you see it. The curse is real. And it's rooted in a moral decision that we as the caretakers of the earth made. And evil was introduced. But here's the beautiful thing that we see in God's redemptive plan and certainly in the work of Jesus Christ. The Lord uses the consequences of our failure to further reveal his glory. He ordained it, he allowed it, 
but we are responsible for it. But even in spite of that, he uses it to bring about his glory, as we will see in John chapter 9. So let's just go to our passage today, beginning in verse 1. Here's what the Bible says. As he passed by Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Of course, you know, and you're familiar with the idea that in the Jewish culture, whenever disease or evil was visited upon someone in this manner, the idea was that it was a result of either the sinful actions of that individual or of the parents. And this was God's judgment Upon them. Now, in one sense, that's true because it's a result of the, the moral failure from the fall, and there's a curse here. But Jesus wants to correct that understanding of a specific familial sin that led to this man's blindness. Jesus answered. This is one of the most powerful verses in Scripture to me. It strikes me every time I read it. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but look at this, that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, does anybody else just wrestle with that? This man was born blind so that the work of God might be displayed in him. Sit with that for a minute. So let me ask you a question. Would you be okay with that? If you were born blind, so that the work of God could be displayed in you? I I wrestle with that. Interesting. So how is it that the work of God is displayed in this man? Let's just walk through the discourse of nine, chapter 9, and see how Jesus uses this blindness to bring about his glory, okay? Look at verses 8 to 12. Am I up there? Ugh. Okay. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said it is he. Others said no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? Now, if you just go back a little bit, you'll see that Jesus kind of makes him go wash off some mud. And then as a result, he's able to see again. Okay? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. And so as you see John kind of outlining in this gospel the idea that Jesus is worthy of worship, that he's worthy of belief, this man and the testimony of the miraculous work that Christ has done in him causes people to begin to question what kind of person this Jesus is. The same response that you and I are called to have whenever we read the gospel of John or the, the work of Jesus throughout the gospels. We're to look at what he is doing and we're to question Who is he? Why is he able to do this kind of stuff? And we see that happening around the testimony of this man who was born blind and yet can now 
see. Let's look at verse 24. While the people around him, who were not necessarily Jewish elite of the day, responded positively, the Pharisees of the day responded negatively. So the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Well, they were saying that because Jesus was doing this on the Sabbath. And as we've always already seen from John 5, it's no issue for God to work on the Sabbath, right? Even the, the Pharisees and the Jewish scholars of the day recognized that on the seventh day, when the Sabbath is happening, somebody's still upholding the universe. God didn't take a nap or else we wouldn't exist, right? He answered, What a powerful statement of faith here. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know. Anybody ever been there? That though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've already told you and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. That's the whole point of the miracle. The man answered, why this, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened opened the eyes of a a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Important statement there. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? (laughs) And they cast him out. Notice here that the way that Christ overcomes this evil and suffering in the life of this man engenders worship and belief in some. Now, it also causes the elite of the day, the prideful of the day, to not do that because they are afraid of what it will do, as you heard Pastor David say this morning, to their corrupt system. But the point is, who other than God can overcome something like this? Okay? Now, hold on to that. Let's go to something even greater in John chapter 11. Another very familiar story, and I think very appropriate for the time frame that we are in right now in terms of a religious sense. Beloved friend of Jesus, you know him, Lazarus dies. Friend of the family. And the sisters of Lazarus send to Jesus while Lazarus is sick to come and heal him. Let's look at this. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, at this point, is Lazarus dead? No. He's ill, okay? But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. 
hold on to that. That same kind of terminology that we see in John chapter 9, right? This man was not born blind as a result of sin. He was born that way so that the glory of God could be displayed in him. And yet here again we see an illness come upon Lazarus, which ultimately will lead to his physical death. What is Jesus saying? This illness is not going to result in death. It's going to result in the glory of God. Okay? So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, we're affirming this in our spirit because we see it in the Scripture, right? And we know it's got to be true. But there's still that tension. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So what's about to happen is not a function of the fact that Christ does not care for these people, right? He loves them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Okay, Lazarus is ill, sick to the point where it's worthy of going to get Jesus. Jesus loves them. And yet when he hears that Lazarus is sick to the point of death, what does he do? Does he run to them? He waits two more days. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? And this is a great side discourse of Jesus saying, listen, I don't care who's after me. If God calls me to go do something, I'm going to go do it, and he's going to protect me. Okay? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone excuse me, walks in the day, he does not stumble because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. Notice the temporariness of this. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Because you know the disciples are, they never get it the first time. And then, now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking rest and sleep. And so then Jesus told them plainly. You know, it's one of those things, like you kind of cultivate and craft the, the really cool way to say it, and nobody gets it, and then you just got to say it in the simplest form. That's the way the disciples were. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And listen to this. And for your sake, whose sake? Your sake. I am glad that I was not there. A man that he loves who was ill, he was glad that he was not there so he could die. So that you may believe. There's that purpose statement. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins and said to the fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Gotta love Thomas. All right, now let's jump down to verses 25 to 27. Let me come back here. Martha comes out to Jesus. She's talking to Jesus saying, Jesus, if you had been here, I know my brother would not have died. And Jesus responds to her saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, son of God, who is coming into the world. Now look at verses 40 to 44 down here. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you would believe, if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. 
Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you will always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Now notice here, this is a direct counter to process theology. That the reason that God does not respond to evil is because he does not know that evil is about to happen. Every single evidence of the text suggests that God knew what was going to happen with Lazarus. Jesus knew what was going to happen with Lazarus. And yet, he chose to respond differently than we would expect. Not an issue of him not knowing. It's an issue of him wanting to do something different. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. It's a pretty impressive statement. Pretty impactful statement. Here's what we see in John 11 we see Jesus overcome the consequence of sin and death to bring glory to God and generate belief in those who saw it. There was a purpose, and it was to bring glory to God, to generate belief in those who saw it. Now, we must also recognize that this good act in the face of evil led to the moral decision of the Pharisees to carry out greater evil on Jesus in verse 53. It's at this point that they commit in their hearts to begin the point of bringing the, the process of bringing Jesus to death and ultimately Lazarus in 12, 9 through 11 because many people began following Jesus as a result of what happened to Lazarus. And so they were going to rebury the evidence, as it were, by putting Lazarus back in the grave. We've got to quit allowing this guy to walk around and talk about what Jesus had done because it's causing people to want to follow and worship him. These miraculous acts did not solve the greater problem. Evil and suffering still existed even after this temporary resolvement of evil and suffering was taken up. But what we see all in all of these miracles is that they are a precursor of what will happen. They are a blip on the radar, a, a, a foretaste of what is to come to show that one day God can overcome all evil and all suffering. Something no more clearly displayed than in the sacrifice of Jesus himself. If you look at John chapter 19, you see one of the most evil acts ever done on the face of the earth. An innocent man being condemned to die. But interesting that the Pharisees' opposition to Christ and desire to visit evil upon him ultimately led to the event that would seal evil's defeat for all time. Just look at John 19 and read about the the nature of the evil and suffering that is visited upon Jesus, a result of a moral decision by these people to condemn him to death. And yet, look at how Peter describes this in Acts 2.23. 
Men of Israel, we get in verse 22. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, right? So Jesus' ability to overcome this evil, these, these um, dark things in our lives was a testament to the fact that he has a unique power and is worthy of belief and worship. And yet you did not believe that. This Jesus, listen to this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now hold up. The greatest evil, the greatest suffering this world has ever known was brought about by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Yet, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They're responsible for the evil. They did the act, but it was done under the ordination and the foreknowledge of God. And why did God allow this? Because the cross becomes an act of evil and suffering that sets the stage for the complete eradication of evil and suffering. The cross becomes an act of evil and suffering that sets the stage for the complete eradication of evil and suffering for those in Christ anyway. Those outside of Christ, there will be an eternity of suffering, unfortunately as a result of their rebellion. The reason why that evil and suffering even exists today. This moral evil that was the result of man misusing his free will gave the opportunity for God to display his glory in its greatest form. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. This act became an instrument of God's glory for our good. Okay. So now that we've looked at those, I just want to provide some some thoughts for us with the remainder of our time that I hope will become um, encouragement to you. So, closing thought number one. We must recognize that there is evil in the world. I mean, the Bible, more than any other book, recognizes the evil of evil. What I do not want to do today in providing an explanation, or even an incomplete one, because ultimately we cannot know the mind of God. But we have to recognize that evil exists and evil is bad. And when we do have disease in our life and we do have loss in our life, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to feel the pain of evil. Yet we cannot grieve as those who do not have a hope. A hope that transcends that temporary evil, that temporary suffering. We must recognize that there is evil in the world. That bad things happen as a result of man's rebellion against the Lord. And he's allowed these things to happen. Secondly, we cannot remove part of God's being and trying to explain away God's culpability in the face 
of evil. It doesn't do any good to diminish all that God is. Because then what is he anyway? And then there must be some other force out there that is greater than he that probably is more worthy of our worship than he is. Because if evil is outside of God's control, then it must be more powerful to him. So then should we begin to worship evil? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't help the problem. We have to recognize we are responsible for moral evil. We are responsible for the fall. And yet God's sovereignty is not outside of that. And he will use it for his glory. Sometimes the Lord chooses to intervene in the lives of man through the miraculous to overcome that evil for his glory and our good. But even when he does not, he is still good. There's a guy named Maurice Wiles, philosopher, who wrote a book called God's Action in the World. And his argument is that we as Christians should not believe in the miraculous because if God could do a miraculous work in these instances, why wouldn't he do miraculous works in greater instances of evil? Like large natural disasters or or things like the eradication of the Jewish people or the attempt of the eradication of the Jewish people at the end of World War II. World War II. Why wouldn't he do something there? So if God could do something, he would have done something. Therefore, we shouldn't believe in miracles. And I think Maurice has it backwards. The purpose of miracles is not to simply rescue men from evil and suffering. They're to set forth or affirm the glory of God. God has not... Let me see, I actually wrote this down. I don't want to do this. Here we go. Some evil in the world is without purpose. And God is under no obligation to do anything with it except condemn it. It's a guy named Bruce Little, who is a professor of philosophy at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Ultimately, all of that evil will be eradicated when Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom, judgment upon that evil will come eventually. Just because it wasn't eradicated immediately does not mean that it's outside of the sovereignty and will of God to overcome ultimately. And we have to trust in that hope. And God's purpose in eradicating some evil immediately is not simply to rescue us. More importantly, It's to set himself up as a worthy object of worship and to bring himself glory. Further, sometimes he allows that evil to happen in our lives to bring about greater faithfulness or repentance as he did in the Old Testament. A couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of preaching on Wednesday night and I covered a story very familiar to all of us if you grew up in the church, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? From Daniel 3. And it's an interesting story. And many of us don't really um, spend a lot of time as adults thinking through it because it was so kind of ingrained in our minds as children, you know? Like I tell you guys, I was so challenged 
by that story. By the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a foreign land to stand up to the king of Babylon that just conquered their home and drug them to the city in the first place. And yet, when he's calling all the nations under his rule to bow and worship this image he constructed, these three young men stand up to him and they say, we're not going to bow and worship this thing. We can serve you as the the king. We can honor you in that way, but we're not going to bow and worship this thing because our worship is ultimately to the Lord. And they say, listen, we have no need to answer you, O king, as to why we shouldn't do this, but our God will deliver us from you. You want to throw us in that fiery furnace? God will deliver us. But even if he does not, we still won't worship this thing. And then they get thrown into the fiery furnace. And something I said that night that's just stuck with me because the Lord just gave it to me and has been speaking to me ever since is this. Sometimes God gets more glory in bringing us through the fire than simply extinguishing it. And my friends, that's a radical type of faith. It builds our faith in incredible ways to see God's faithfulness even in the midst of evil and suffering in our lives. And it's a testimony to those around us. That even when things are not going great, we will still worship the Lord. And you know these people. Many of you know Jim Patterson. And you know how he dealt with cancer and ultimately giving his life to cancer. I told a story that night also of a lady I knew um, when I was younger. Her name, uh, I lost it, it's terrible. Hold on. Molly Hartree, there it is, thank you. I haven't had a, a drink of this in a while, hold on. Her name is Molly Hartrick, And she um, directed a camp that I worked at when I was younger. And she has diabetes. She had diabetes, and the diabetes had taken her eyes. It eventually took both of her legs, and then ultimately took her life. Uh, she was a Christian counselor, and she just loved people. She was the most joyous person I've ever met on, in my life. I remember talking to her one day before she had lost her legs, but she had lost her eyesight. I said, "Miss Molly, what have you learned through this whole process, and, and how can you be so joyful in the midst of all of this?" And she said, "Jared." It wasn't until the Lord took my eyesight that I actually saw him. And that sounds vaguely familiar to me. If you look at the end of the book of Job, and if you want to be challenged in your faith, go read the book of Job. You, of course, uh, there's, a, there's a big tension in the book of Job. Why is all of this happening to Job? I mean, there's a lot of evil that hits Job. Why is all this happening? And Job questions the Lord, speaks to the Lord, and he asks, why is all this going on? And do you remember how the Lord answers Job? Look at chapter 38, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Sometimes we've got to be in the whirlwind to, to hear the Lord, right? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? 
Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst from the womb? And he goes on like this forever. Do you know when a lamb's going to be born? Do you know all of this stuff? Were you the creator of the world? And how does Job respond to all of this? After a few chapters of God's diatribe against Job, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. Now this man had lost everything, had disease put upon his body. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And this is the big, big statement right here, verse 5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What a faith perspective exemplified by Job at the end of a very difficult time. Sometimes he allows evil to happen in our lives to bring about greater faithfulness or repentance as he did in the Old Testament, which we just saw. In any situation, though, whether we feel like it is deserved or not, we have the promise that God can be found faithful in the midst of it and will ultimately be over and it will ultimately be overcome when Christ returns to gather his church and establish his kingdom once and for all. And you guys know when he comes back this next time, it ain't going to be on a donkey. He's coming as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he will eradicate every effect of the fall. The miracles in the gospel, thank you. The miracles in the gospel are proof that he can do it and one day he will. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that he can do it and one day he will. It's a blip on the radar, as I said. One day, very soon, everything will pass away and all things will be made new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth and you and I as followers of Jesus will be resurrected. Glorified bodies. And that hope we have because it has been displayed for us that it is possible that God can do those things and he will do them when it's appropriate in his grant, excuse me, redemptive plan. Now I want to speak just really briefly because I feel like I wouldn't be doing the topic justice if I didn't just identify the fact that sometimes... Um, there is gratuitous evil. And the question becomes, okay, so yeah, there, evil exists and God uses it, but why so much of it? You know, why, why did that level or that, listen, ultimately we don't know. What we can affirm is that God is good. It's a statement of faith too. God is good. 
and that ultimately evil at every level will be overcome. And some evil, there is no direct good. It is simply evil that, and God condemns it. And listen, he is under no obligation to bring about good from all evil as evil is a result of the curse. He will, however, overcome it and glorify himself as he displays his wrath and his judgment and his righteousness upon it. But we do have the promise that if it happens to us right now, he is faithful to extend mercy and grace in the midst of it to his people. It's not because he doesn't love you. He loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He wept for them to show the humanity of Christ and his love for us. Don't miss that in the midst of whatever you're walking through, but trust that God will give you grace and mercy in the midst of it and that one day he will overcome it. Maybe right now to give glory to him and inspire belief in others, but maybe not right now. Maybe in the future when Jesus comes back. Because listen, Every single person healed in the Bible died. You know what I mean? I mean, you can pray for healing all day long, but one day it's going to catch up with you. Why? Because sin is the consequence, or death is the consequence of sin. But God has shown that he can overcome that. And one day it will be overcome permanently. Some questions for thought for you guys. How do you respond in the midst of difficult circumstances? Do you immediately pray for God to just extinguish the fire? Like many of us do. Or do you ask him to be with you in the midst of it? To teach you what he wants to teach you about his faithfulness in the midst of it and to inspire belief in others. That's a a heavy thing for us to wear. Because we're so comfortable as Americans, aren't we? We just don't like discomfort. And we're okay with our faith as long as it doesn't cause us to step into discomfort. But sometimes faithfulness to God is uncomfortable. How will you respond in the midst of it? Do you take comfort in knowing that one day all evil will be overcome as evidenced in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's the beautiful thing right now. As the church, we get to participate in overcoming some of this evil even now until it's permanently done when Christ returns. We get to speak the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ into people who can then turn their moral compass around as a result of the Holy Spirit of God living within them so that their moral choices are used to honor the Lord. Not to build up their own kingdom, but to build the kingdom of God. We have the ability to combine our resources together to do things about disease, poverty, abortion. Things that are terrible to the Lord. And then finally, have you allowed Jesus to bear your sin for you on the cross? Because that evil done to him did have a greater purpose. As Jesus promises us, when we lift him up, he will draw all men unto himself. And that's not a statement of just worship, it's a statement of showing him 
on the cross. To recognize that that act of evil and suffering allowed for evil and suffering to ultimately be overcome. Our sin, the result of our sin, no longer having victory over our lives, but instead, that death and subsequent resurrection guarantees a greater victory in our lives if we accept, as Pastor David said this morning, the blood of a lamb provided for us. So, heavy things to think about. Wherever you are, recognize that God is still good. You gotta, that's a faith statement. Because sometimes in our, our flesh and our emotions, we don't want to believe that, that a good God would allow this into our lives, but he has. So why? It could be that it's just simply a result of the depravity of our fallen world. And we've got to trust that ultimately one day he will overcome that. And our faithfulness to him in those moments exemplify a faith that trusts in his ultimate victory. Or it could be for a specific purpose, for a specific reason in your life to teach you something in that moment that will lead you to greater faithfulness and devotion as then you can go out and proclaim, as these people did in the New Testament text, of the faithfulness to God and how he did something so miraculous in your life that is worthy of belief. And my friends, even if he's never done anything else for you, what he did for you on the cross is enough to proclaim his worth in being worshipped. So then we should not forget as we approach this Easter season. Amen? Now, I do not pretend that I have covered this topic sufficiently or certainly comprehensively. And so I just direct you guys again, guys like D.A. Carson, N.T. Wright, have great books on evil. Go read them if you're more interested in that. I have a limited amount of time, obviously. I want you to be encouraged this morning that everything that happens is ultimately for the glory of God. And if we exist to give glory to God, then let us strive in any circumstance, at any time we find ourselves, to figure out how to give glory to God in the midst of it. And watch Him prove Himself faithful. Watch Him allow you to say the words as Job did. My ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen. And there's just something true about that, isn't there? That in the times... We find ourselves in the darkest moments is the time that Christ's light shines the brightest. It's in those moments that we discover that God is truly our very present help in a time of trouble, as the psalmist says. He just reveals himself to us, and he is worthy of worship for a multitude of things, including the way he overcomes evil. Presently, in some cases, but ultimately in all cases. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, I pray you would take this heavy truth, Father, exemplified for us on the cross as we begin to focus upon that in a unique way, Father, this holy week, although it's a a presence in our lives every day. God, help us to see how you allowed that evil act and suffering of Christ to ultimately bring about and secure the overall ultimate defeat of all evil and suffering. And God, help us now as we walk through this life 
in a depraved world, God, that's broken, seeking to bring about restoration by the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we find ourselves victims of this broken world, God, to not despise you or reject you, Father, but cling to you, to find your mercy and favor in the midst of it, but also, God, continue to worship as you are good in the midst of it. God, we love you. We thank you in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you, guys. You are dismissed.